Welcome to another episode of Anthropod. I'm Rupa Pillai. And I'm Jessica Lockram. So this month we have a two-part episode that goes behind the scenes of cultural anthropology and academic publishing that is actually the creation of the newest member of Anthropod, Jessica Lockram. Jessica, how did the idea for this ambitious episode come about? I was first inspired to produce this episode when I attended the American Anthropological Association meetings last November. At those meetings, the current editors of Cultural Anthropology, Ann Allison and Charles Pio, invited the Cultural Anthropology editorial interns up for drinks. At the meeting, one of the questions they asked us was if we felt that we received mentoring at our institutions about when and how to publish our research. And this sparked a discussion among the interns on some of these issues. I also attended a writing workshop with Tom Belsdorf at those meetings, and he gave such a wealth of advice for scholars interested in publishing for the first time, which I knew would be of interest to other graduate students and junior scholars. But in addition to these encounters at the AAA, you were also the editorial assistant of the journal Culture Anthropology. Yeah, that's right. I've been working as the editorial assistant for the incoming editors of Cultural Anthropology since this past January. So I've been learning a lot about what happens from the time that someone first submits an article until that article is either declined or accepted for publication. I wanted to share some of what I'm learning and seeing with our Anthropod listeners. Well, that's very thoughtful of you, and I can't wait to hear it. So for part one of the series, we'll hear from Ann Allison, Tom Belstorff, and Tim Elfenbein. Yes, so we will first hear my conversation with Ann Allison, who is Professor of Anthropology and Women's Studies at Duke University. Ann and Charles Pio are the current editors of Cultural Anthropology through the end of 2014. Let's listen to our discussion. Welcome to Anthropod, Ann, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'm looking forward to this. And I wanted to begin by first asking you about your process for choosing which articles would be sent out for peer review and which would eventually be published in cultural anthropology. I know the answer to this question is probably not easy to answer. Articles are generally given one of three decisions, a decline, a revise and resubmit, or what we call an R&R, meaning the author is invited to edit the manuscript and resubmit it, or an accept. How did you go about making those decisions? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're right. That's tricky and it's complex. And it's a little bit subjective and a little bit objective. Um, Charlie and I did it together, so we, we were able to talk a lot. We, we did not send out anything for review. I think the current editorial collective is probably sending more um, essays out for review. I mean, editors do this differently. We didn't send everything out for, for a couple of reasons. Um, it's really hard, actually, to get people to review these days. I mean, everyone is pressed. Everyone has a thousand things that they're doing. So to get people to actually agree to um, review a piece, you know, it takes a time commitment and it takes a certain amount of labor. So that becomes hard and that becomes a lot of work at our end to try to find reviewers. So what we tried to do, we, we had a different tactic. We sent, and I can't actually tell you what percentage we sent out. I mean, anything that we thought was, was in the ballpark we sent out. And again, your question is a great question, Jessica. It's also really hard to answer. Like, how do you know? I mean, how do you know? Is it in the ballpark or not? We, um, it, you know, we would read it 
really carefully when it came in. The two of us would read it really carefully and have a conversation. And we would try to figure out, well, is this is this in the ballpark? And and if if it felt like it was too far out, that it would just require too, too much or that it would take too long. Another um, consideration that Charlie and I had is that we didn't want submissions to get too bogged down in, um, in the pipeline. We didn't want you all waiting a year, year and a half, two years. I have a, a, a young colleague here that I just had coffee, well, actually wine, this being South Africa, we had wine yesterday. And he asked me this question and he had just gotten back after sitting for a year and a half, you know, uh, his, his first set of reviews for the piece that he submitted a year and a half ago. And the reviews were, um, you know, one was pretty devastating, but also did not give him any clear guidelines and, and how to revise it. The other one was more positive. The editor simply said, revise accordingly. And he's totally frustrated. He said, well, he said, I'm, I'm angry. I, you know, this, uh, do the editors want it? Do they not want it? Should I, should I bother with this? You know, the review wasn't really helpful. So again, what Charlie decided to do, that, I mean, again, this was our, what we decided, is that we tried to do it a little quicker so that you wouldn't be faced with waiting a year and a half and then get a decline. We thought that if we had a pretty good sense that probably it, it wasn't going to make it, that we would prefer to move it a little quicker at, at the beginning. Um, and again, that's that's what we did. And editors, you know, vary. Um, to your other question, so how do you tell? I, you know, again, it's 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 hard. And I think every uh, editor or pair of editors or every every collective editorial board has a different way of assessing this. For us. We wanted that balance. We wanted something that was theoretically smart, that was not just rehashing an old argument, unless it was an old argument with a new edge to it. We wanted it to be ethnographic, but not overly ethnographic. We wanted there to be some sort of story or interesting narrative. We put a lot of emphasis on the writing. We wanted uh, pieces to be written well. Um, but then we always deviated from that as well. I mean, there were some that were much more theoretical than others, some that were much more ethno ethnographic than theoretical. So at some point, we also had to kind of rely on our own instincts. You know, well, okay, this, this, is, this is interesting. And also, this, this is a little different. We haven't seen anything quite like this, which isn't to say that the novel you know, that which is novel and that which is new should be fetishized. But there is something about doing something a little bit, you know, a little bit different, a little taking something a little bit pioneering and, and, and running with it that, uh, you know, that we were, we were interested in. Uh, thank you. I mean, that's really interesting getting some insight into your own editorial thinking. And one of my other questions was, how do you balance your own assessment of work and your own instincts as editors with, of course, you're sending the all of the articles that are eventually published out for review. So you're getting probably at least two reviews, I imagine. Um, and I was wondering if you ever disagreed with those reviews, perhaps the reviews were negative, but you wanted to 
um, give the article another chance. Or maybe even if a review swayed you in the other direction and you were sort of on the fence with the essay to begin with and the, the reviews really convinced you that this was a, a novel piece of writing that should be published in cultural anthropology. Yeah, um, all of the above. What we try to do is what we, um, we try to be responsible um, readers ourselves. So we did not simply give it over to the reviewers, which I think some editors do. I think some editors just send it out. Uh, Larry Grossberg, who's a colleague of mine at University of North Carolina, um, who does cultural studies, and he, he is editor of a cultural studies journal, he says that he... He um, he lets the he lets the reviewers decide almost entirely that if it's two positive reviews, it gets published. If it's two negative reviews, it's out. Um, we we never did that. We always thought that we were editors for a reason, and that we should um, we should we should take that seriously. So we would always read, and we would send it out, and the reviews would come back, and then we would read the reviews very uh, very carefully. And sometimes, as you, as you said, you know, sometimes we totally agree and we go, oh, yeah, that, you know, absolutely. I, you know, I wasn't quite sure about this, but this review articulates what I was thinking. Sometimes we disagree. We thought, oh, yeah, this is kind of a pissy review. And actually, we kind of disagree with this. But, but the point, there, there is one point here that's, you know, uh, we would agree with. And what we tried to do, uh, and sometimes we were better than others, is that what we tried to do is if we gave it an R&R, and usually when it came in with reviews, we would give it an R&R. Not necessarily. If the two reviews were pretty negative, sometimes we would decline it at that point. But, but usually we gave it an R&R, and what we, again, what we tried to do is we tried not to just say, okay, here are the reviews, revise and resubmit. We tried to say, well, we find these reviews really interesting, and... Um, the ones, you know, the the the, um, the the feedback and suggestions that they put on the table, uh, we would like you to pay particular attention to these. So that's what we tried to do. I mean, we tried to editorialize the review process because we thought that that would be much more helpful for an author. Again, just speaking myself, I have gotten reviews sometimes where the editor didn't do, didn't do that, and the editor said we'll just revise accordingly. And I would be very frustrated. I think, well, you know, there are 10 things here. I can't do all 10. So which of these is going to be most important to you, the editor, because in the end, you, the editor, is going to be making the choice. So that's what we did. Yeah. And you're right. Sometimes, sometimes we totally disagreed with the reviewers, but that was, that was rare. Usually we agreed selectively. As you know, I'm I'm the editorial assistant for the for the incoming editors, and in that job, I see all of the reviews come in come in, and I see the editors' feedback to authors, and I've really gotten a new appreciation for how editors and reviewers can really help shape an argument, shape an essay, um, really help improve the writing. And it, I mean, this was, I mean, I guess, of course, I always knew that this happened, but we often think about the lone field work and anthropologists often publish as a solo author. And so I've really gotten a new appreciation for the many, you know, the many voices in some ways that go into these 
into these essays. And I was wondering, I mean, you've spoken about this a little bit already, but I was wondering if you had thoughts on um, how editors and peer reviewers have influenced the essays that you've published in Culture Anthropology, or maybe even how um, editor, you've worked with editors and worked with reviews in your own books and articles that you've published. Well, I've also been part of the editorial um, the editorial board at Duke University Press. And it's been, and I'm, I'm no longer, but I did that for three years. And it was really fascinating to see, you know, we went, I mean, we saw it right at the end after it had gone through the review process. And there, sometimes books are put through, manuscripts are put through two, three, sometimes four rounds of reviews. It's amazing. And then you, and they try to send back to at least one of the original reviewers. So they're not just, you know, sending that to new reviewers all the time. And, you know, reviewers would say at the end, wow, this book was just totally turned around. And that's what I constantly was impressed with, that if you get good reviewers, and by good reviewers, I mean people who are really going to take the article or the book manuscript seriously, really try to engage it, try to really figure out what is the author trying to do here? And then really seriously try to help that person understand, well, you know, this chapter isn't working or this argument that you're making is too, uh, you know, it's too vague or it's too speculative or, you know, your field work is so great, but, you know, you're, you're giving us too many details here and really give useful feedback. Um, and I am constantly impressed with the degree and quality of review that we get at CA. I mean, I didn't see too many bad reviews. I mean, sometimes the tone was off or sometimes it was really short or sometimes it was nasty. I mean, we do get sometimes people are just nasty when they review. Um, but you often find this incredible generosity and thoughtfulness and the articles that will come back in that were um, the most uh, uh, wonderful for us to read were the ones who had taken that in the best spirit of the review and didn't get defensive and didn't say, well, you know, this review just didn't know what I was, you know, they, they didn't bother to take the time to figure out what I was doing. Instead, to really try to pay attention to what the reviewer is, is saying and really revise accordingly. And, you know, we would see articles come back in so much better. It was just wonderful. It was like, wow, oh, that's just great because we knew, we knew it was good. And we knew that it was, it was really um, almost there, but not quite there. And the review process really put it over the edge. So that's what a good review process can do. But it's not easy. And it's not easy either for the reviewer or for the author. So, um, you know, taking the review process seriously, it's really important for anyone who's given that request to do that. Um, and then for the author to really be able to, to really pay attention to that review. Um, and again, it's not easy. All of our egos are on the line. I mean, we, we would love reviewers to say right off the bat, wonderful, brilliant, publish as is, right? But rarely does that happen. And so then we also have to be willing to be uh, self-critical and, and again a good review process can turn um, a good article or an okay article to a great article. Right I have new appreciation for the thanks that authors often give in the acknowledgments to the two or three anonymous reviewers because I've seen these reviews and they are oftentimes pages long with really like you said really taking the 
the essay seriously and offering very, very thoughtful advice. It's clear they've spent a lot of time on these reviews. And of course, they remain anonymous to everyone except for except for the editor. So yeah, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering if you would share with us what you found to be some of the biggest challenges of being editors over the past almost five years now. Yeah, I mean, we actually really loved it. We, um, we weren't sure we wanted to do this because it's, as you say, a lot of labor. And it really is a lot of labor. We spent at least 20 hours each, each week. Um, every Saturday, we would go into the office and work all day long uh, on the journal. And there was that. I mean, there not that that was a frustration, but that was a constant. We, uh, I mean, it was constant work. And that was hard on top of everything else. We each got one course off the year, but the constancy of it was hard. Uh, what was also hard is those article, I mean, those submissions that were, um, they all were unique and they all required a certain kind of attentiveness that sometimes was hard. You know, sometimes it was hard to figure out, wow, you know, I don't quite get this one. I can't quite tell what they're saying and whether, whether they're right or not, or whether it's, you know, an important argument. And, uh, that would be hard, you know, it's it's hard because you want to you want to treat each of these with the care that they deserve. And you only have so many hours that you can do that. So there are times where it's it that's hard. That's and it's frustrating. Um, sometimes we would give a piece, you know, an R and R and it would come back in. And the reviews we thought had been really constructive. And we imagined that we would be publishing the piece. And it came in, you know, not much different than when, you know, we had given an R&R. &R. And that was, that was, that could be kind of frustrating. Um, there would be pieces written uh, often, but not necessarily by non-native speakers, where we knew that, uh, they were really struggling, not writing in their native language. And we really knew that they were doing something brave and bold and smart, and, but it was so hard to read the English. And again, we only have so many hours that we could devote to this, that we could go back and really do, do this justice. I mean, we couldn't do the help, you know, help with the editing, help with the writing. And so there were scholars, I mean, again, particularly non-native scholars, we wish that we could have figured out a way to get to represent them more in the journal. And I think maybe the current editorial collective is trying to figure out how to do that. Maybe even, you know, to publish a couple articles that you're not in English would be a way of doing that too. But so there were ways that we wanted to open up the journal that we couldn't quite figure out how to do. And those were always uh, a little frustrating. And again, this issue that you started off by asking, like, so what is your advice? I mean, has your, your thinking about this evolved over the five years you've been editors? And we both came to realize that probably the people who get published in a journal like CA are overly represented by people who are in the so-called, not maybe elite institutions, but those 
you know, those graduate programs that have good, um, good uh, stipends where, and they have good mentoring and students are, are, are given the time and the care to really be able to figure out how to, how to write an article like this. And not all, you know, anthropology uh, departments have that luxury. And it would be great if we could figure out a way how to, um, mentor across the board and to do this maybe at triple A's, you know, where we can have sessions where we can help, you know, students from all over, you know, uh, help, you know, in that mentoring process. Sure. Well, I mean, it's when I was uh, talking with Brian, your current editorial assistant, about uh, how how to do the job that I'm doing now, I did see some of uh, a couple of your letters to authors who got um, declined right away, but it seemed like you, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like you you gave a lot of care and attention to those essays, even those essays that you decided weren't going to end up being published in cultural anthropology right away. And you give quite a bit of advice on how the essay could be improved and maybe why it wasn't right for the journal in its current form. So I think, you know, that's something to be said to you both for taking, and like you said, 20 hours a week, my goodness, that's a part-time, it's an extra part-time job on top of everything else you're doing. Um, But to take that time to really mentor authors on um, how to craft an essay is really, you know, I think we should all say thank you to you for taking that time. Well, thank you. That's very sweet that you said that. You know, we we actually tried to do that because, you know, we both have had, uh, you know, I think me more than Charlie have had the experience of getting, not that, of getting rejected by someone who didn't bother to say to me, well, you know, you're on to something that's interesting here. Just, you know, this is what you should be doing. Push it this way. And it feels awful. You know, it feels awful. You, you spend your time and you do your best and it's really near and dear to you and you, you know, you, you're sweating, you know, blood, sweat and tears and this and then someone just dismisses it and says, well, you know, this isn't any good. And it's really, um, it's, it feels awful. So we did not, we did not want to do that to our authors and we tried to always say something positive and we got we got a lot of thank you notes from the notes that we sent to climbing pieces. And so we thought, oh, that's great. So we're doing, we're doing something, you know, we're doing something good here. And again, we, when we didn't send the piece out, but tried to give what we, what we, what we said was a constructive decline. Part of our reasoning for doing that was so that again, it just wouldn't sit in the hopper. And so the author would get some feedback right away and be able to sit down and rework it right away and resubmit it someplace else rather than wait a year, year and a half, two years, and then get a letter of decline. I mean, that's awful. Uh, so at, at least that's, that's what we tried to do. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, let me, let me ask one last question to you. Um, now that you've, you know, you're ne- almost nearing the end of, being editors um, and looking over the past years, are there special issues, particular articles, other products or other projects or initiatives that you're especially proud of that you um, really think fondly looking back on? Um, you're glad you did that as editors. Yeah, thanks. You know, um, we kind of like it all. I mean, we kind of like it all. And we, um, you know, 
when we see when we see authors at the meetings and we go, oh yeah, so you're the one who wrote that because you know we'll develop these personal relations. I mean, with some more than others, um, and you know Charlie would sometimes do you know a particular author and just kind of work with that person three three or four or five times, and I I would do that with different authors, and sometimes a couple pieces would seem to come together, so we would have these clusters together and. Um, oh, some a little bit, you know, some a little bit more than others, but it felt really good. I mean, it felt really good when we had, when a piece was coming out. And um, I think we feel pretty good about it all. I mean, we didn't feel, oh, why did we let that one get published? Some, there's some, you know, that we regret that didn't get out. That, I guess, that we there were ones that we had been working with that in the end, you know, didn't didn't make it. And that felt, you know, that felt bad. But we liked it all. And had we continued, we would have, you know, there there would have been special issues that, that we, we wish we could have got more out on sexuality, you know, or um, but we like we like kind of we like everything that we did. And we're really happy about, of course, the journal going OA. We're really happy about the May special cluster on OA. That is just kind of thrilling for us. Yeah, we were happy with it all. And if we were to keep doing it, there would be other issues that we might want to, uh, the precariousness of the academy, for example, might be something that we would be interested in, in doing more on. But um, yeah, we, we, were, we were really happy to be editors and we're happy to pass it on to such three fine uh, editors right now. Great. Thank you so much for, for talking with us. I do appreciate the time you've taken. Oh uh, yeah, this was fun. Next, I spoke with Tom Balsdorf, who is Professor of Anthropology at UC Irvine. Tom was Editor-in-Chief at American Anthropologist from 2007 to 2012. He is also a member of several editorial boards for prominent academic journals and is co-editing a book series with Bill Maurer for Princeton University Press. Tom shared with me a wealth of advice for junior scholars new to publishing. Let's listen to the interview now. Welcome, Tom, to Anthropod. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So you've written two pieces titled How to Get an Article Accepted at American Anthropologist or Anywhere. What motivated you to write these pieces? Um, when I became editor of American Anthropologist in 2007, I had never edited a full journal before. I'd only edited some books and uh, a book and some special journal issues. And what really surprised me after a few months was seeing how what was causing manuscripts to become rejected at American Anthropologist in many cases, a lot of cases, was not the content necessarily, but common mistakes that people were making in terms of how the articles were being structured and how things were being written, how things were being done. And so I realized that I could write some how-to kinds of pieces like the two that you mentioned that I've, I've published 
where I could talk about some common problems that I saw happening across the four fields between archaeology and linguistic anthropology and culture anthropology, regardless of the topic, some common errors that people were making that are actually quite easy to fix or to avoid. And so I thought it would be you know, a helpful thing for people to know because there's often a lot of mystery um, regarding how the publishing process works, how the review process works. And I'm a real believer in, in transparency and, and spelling things out as clearly as I can. So I, I really wrote those pieces to try and share these common problems that I saw and what I found to be easy solutions to those problems that would hopefully be useful to people regardless of their subfield or the topic that they were looking at or that kind of thing. I wanted to discuss more a couple of the suggestions that you put into those into those pieces. Um, some of them involve citations and engaging with relevant literatures. What were some of the common pitfalls you were seeing um, as as editor of American Anthropologist, and what advice can you give? Citing relevant literatures is really important in an article or a book or anything that you write as a social scientist. And for an article. A big challenge, of course, is limits of space, that you can't have a big, big bibliography like you can with a book, yet you need to satisfy people you know, who are reading the article. And part of the thing is that even though we don't always write co-authoring, we sometimes write by ourselves, we're never really writing alone. We're always standing on the shoulders of our colleagues and building on what other people have done. And what you want to do to have a successful article, in my opinion, is to say something new, of course, you're contributing something, but to show that you're pushing a conversation forward so that you're not just sort of out there in the middle of nowhere with some interesting insight that you have, that there is a set of debates or conversations out there and that your work is pushing that conversation forward. And part of what the relevant literature's stuff does is it allows you to show people what conversation or conversations is it that you are trying to push forward? What is it that you're building on and how is it that you are locating yourself? That's why I recommend, you know, with rare exceptions, to not focus on citing things that you disagree with or to try and make an argument by tearing down the work of other people. Um, you know, debates and challenging work that you find is problematic. It has a place and time, and sometimes it can be useful. But as the default way of writing, I actually think it is of limited effectiveness. I think what's much more convincing for people is to say, you know, if I'm doing work that's about the archaeology of Egypt or something, here's the sort of classic or current or whatever work that I'm building on that has helped me frame my work, has helped me figure out what it is that I want to do. And here now is what I am contributing to that conversation. And so to me, that's a sort of basic principle behind um, engaging with the relevant literatures in that way, because you can't cite everything. And so it, it forces you to say, you know, the whole world is interesting and all of anthropology and beyond is interesting, but who are the key players? And not just individuals, but who are the key conversations? What are the key conversations that are influencing me in this particular article? And that in return, I want to contribute to those conversations. And in my experience, that's what 
can allow you to strike that balance between showing that you're original and showing that you're bringing something new to the table, but not pretending like you're the first person to ever think about these topics or that you're just sort of coming out of nowhere, if you see what I'm saying. Another thing I wanted to bring up is you, um, you wrote that it's important to link your data with your claims, which is obviously easier said than accomplished in a manuscript. Um, and you said you often saw that the, the, the argument that the manuscript was trying to make was often not connected with the data, whether that data is ethnographic or statistical. Um, can you, could you speak more about that issue um, and how authors can be more attentive to making sure the data is linked with their argument that they are making? Yeah, I mean, there's you know no one way to do it, but I think the part of the issue behind this is that for anything that we write, even if it's a book, and certainly if it's an article, we have a lot more data than we use in that article, right? You know, we're only using a piece of what it is that we've gathered, whether that be archival, ethnographic, statistical, you know, interviews, participant observation, whatever. We can never use it all. We have to pick a subset of it. And then we're picking a particular point or points to make in the article. And you just want to be sure that those two things match up with each other and that you aren't picking data that doesn't directly show what it is that you're trying to say to make it convincing to people. Because, you know, if it's a theoretical article, even then you need to show who it is that you're citing and why and how it is that that those other, you know, theoretical claims are relevant to what it is that you're doing. And so I just, you know, I definitely saw many cases where someone would write an article where they were talking about, you know, I don't know, um, how are, you know, Indonesians, um, struggling with questions of religion and the family and then the data wasn't really about religion or you know what I mean that kind of thing or their data would be about religion in the church but the claim was about religion and the family or something like that and so it's just an issue of you want to be sure that your your data that the, the materials that you are bringing forth directly fit your claims and particularly for a more ethnographic article a danger that I've often seen happen is when people use their data simply as vignettes to sort of claim that I was there. So to sort of paint a beautiful picture that, you know, the fog parted and I walked into the plaza and there was a woman there with a, you know, a purple dress selling flowers. And they, they tell a very evocative story, a kind of vignette, but it's not really clear what that is doing in the article to push the argument forward other than give us a picture of what it was like to do the field work and sort of assert ethnographic authority that I actually was there, I'm not making this up. And to be fair, readers of ethnographic articles love that kind of local color. They love to get a sense of where was this done. And so I'm not saying that painting a beautiful picture is a bad idea. It can actually be very effective. But when you do that, find a vignette to use that also links up to what it is that you're trying to say so that it does a kind of double duty rather than have vignettes that are just sort of there to be there that are there, that could have been in any article that are just there to sort of paint a picture because it wastes precious space and it also gets confusing to the reader because especially in an article where space is limited the reader is going to assume that if you've bothered to put some data there whether it's archival, statistical, ethnographic, whatever, you've put it there because it links up to what it is you're trying to say. 
And if the link isn't clear, it really makes people confused and they end up rereading stuff and going back over it. And then the power of your argument gets blunted because the connection is not clear. These pieces were written a few years ago now, and I was wondering if you were to write another today, is there anything else you would want to include, particularly now that you are also editing this book series? I would have, you know, slightly different um, advice that I give to people when it comes to writing books because it is different than an article. Um, and so I do have, you know, some different advice I give to people when writing um, books that I didn't talk about when I was writing the, the pieces that you're talking about for American Anthropologist. Um, but many of the principles, I mean, have not changed at all. Like I wouldn't change any of my earlier um, things at all. But, you know, for instance, when it comes to books, one advice, that piece of advice I often give to people is that um, we live in a world where people are really busy and, you know, reading books is time consuming and people often skim a book before they decide whether to read it or not. And so something that I've always done in my books that I encourage and I, I find valuable in other books is to really make the first chapter a kind of microcosm of the overall argument. So if you have a seven chapter book and it has a certain arc, it tells a certain story, it goes over certain issues and topics, to try and have the introductory chapter replicate that arc in miniature so that if you only read the first chapter of the book, you leave with a basic sense of what it is that the author, you know, or what it is that you are trying to say. And particularly because, you know, I'm a big advocate for open access, as many people know, but we're already in a situation for many years where even if you don't have total open access, many book publishers will release the first chapter of the book as a free PDF. And so, if people read like the first chapter of Coming of Age and Second Life or The Gay Archipelago or one of my books, you'll notice that it actually is a kind of miniature of the entire book. And so that's something that I find helpful, I think, to the reader because then, you know, there can be surprises later in the book, but I, I think you don't want to hold back on your big take-home points and only bring them up eight chapters into a book because the reality is a lot of people are not going to stick it out for eight chapters or they're only going to do it if they have a feeling they know what they're going to get, right? That there's something useful here. So I'm a fan of sort of giving it all away in the first chapter of a book in the sense that you give people the sort of key points that you're going to be doing. And then of course there can be additional surprises and details and other kinds of things later on, but that's a way to get the reader to make the commitment to read the entire book or to read more chapters. So that's like an example of a kind of advice that I give people around book writing that is not so relevant to the, the article form. That many of the principles that I, I talk about in those various pieces of mine apply just as much to books uh, as they do to articles and are absolutely still relevant. Hmm, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've read that, that piece where you talk about being rejected yourself or having to go through multiple rounds of revisions. Um, would you mind sharing um, those, your, or I guess, those stories again and um, maybe advice to young scholars who might be receiving their first manuscript rejections? Yeah, well, rejection is part of the scholarly process. And especially, you know, if you're a graduate student and you're finishing up or whatever, 
hopefully, you know, I guess it depends on your graduate program, but hopefully in most graduate programs, you aren't really experiencing rejection in the same kind of way, except maybe for fieldwork grants, because your professors in graduate school might challenge you and, you know, grade you and give you ideas, but they're on your side, you know, they're, they aren't going to reject you. But even when you get rejected for the manuscripts or books or kinds of things, in a very powerful sense, those people are on your side as well. And that's something very powerful to realize, even on the job market with jobs, but certainly with articles or books. When I first became editor of American Anthropologist, I made a decision, and many decisions, but one decision that I made is that if reviewers made really mean-spirited kinds of comments that would say, you know, this author writes like a 15-year-old, or this is a completely stupid thing to be saying, that I would delete those. I would redact them so that the, the author didn't need to see that kind of thing. And what really surprised me was that five years of being editor of American Anthropologist, I only had to do that two or three times. That most reviewers are incredibly kind and generous even if they recommend that something be rejected, they'll offer very helpful comments. And so that's why I think it's important to think about when something gets rejected, it could be that it's not the right fit for that journal, or it could be that the piece just needs more work, it's not clear yet, and you're getting feedback that allows you to revise and resubmit it to somewhere else, to another journal. And that's part of the scholarly process. And that is a harder piece of advice for junior scholars, especially if you're on the job market or trying to get tenure, because to go through this process for one journal, depending on their speed, can be six months, one year, two years in some cases. It's finally rejected and then you're starting over again. So that's why ideally you have multiple things out under review. And so it's, you know, it's easier said than done. I understand that. But nevertheless, I think as you become a reviewer yourself, but also as you, you know, deal with these reviews from other people, to think of it also in, as if you get a review that's negative, one way that I think about it is to not think about it as what's wrong with my article or how have I failed or whatever, but to look at that negative review and think, okay, how is it that I have been misunderstood? How is it that what I have tried to do is not getting through to people, is not is being misunderstood. And what can I do to try and reduce the chance of being misunderstood to the greatest degree that I can? So that it's not about you being wrong or you know whatever that kind of thing, but that people are not getting what you're trying to say. They're getting confused or they're getting the wrong idea, they're misunderstanding. And the thing is while there is such a thing as willful misreading, people just read something not carefully or in a bad frame of mind and they misinterpret it on purpose, in general, people are trying and if they're getting the wrong conclusion or they're not understanding what you're doing, it's actually your problem, not theirs. And you can never avoid all misunderstandings and all misreadings, but you can really reduce the chances of it by making your argument as clear as possible. And I think it's valuable to think about rejection in that way, that you've been misunderstood and that it's your problem. So based on what people have seen, how can I revise this to make it more clear rather than making it more right, rather than thinking of it as, my argument is bad or wrong, I need to make it better in that sense, to think of it more as 
my article is unclear, how can I make it more clear? But for most top journals, you know, never accept something on the first round. So revise and resubmit is actually a sign that they think there's value. If you send something into a journal and it comes back with a revise and resubmit, you always revise and resubmit it because if they didn't think it had a chance, they would have rejected it. The fact that they're giving you an R&R means they think there's a chance this could be viable. And most top journals accept at first submission 10% of the manuscripts, 5%, 0%. Many top journals require that everything go through at least one R&R before they accept it. And so don't even think of an R&R as a rejection. A revise and resubmit is a sign of interest. But then if you do a revise and resubmit and after that it gets rejected, take heart, you know, don't give up and think of it as how can I make my work more clear and more effective um, to the broadest audience possible. Hmm. That's, that's great advice. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Um, so one thing I've noticed as a, a, in my position as editorial assistant for cultural anthropology is that often when and if uh, manuscripts do get declined, the editors will say, why don't you, we, we think this might be a better fit for another journal, sometimes an area studies journal or a journal that is more closely focused on a topic. I um, mean, it does seem important to find the appropriate journal for a particular article. Do you have any suggestions or advice on how to choose what journal would be suitable and how to craft an essay towards a particular journal's audience? Well, um, so first of all, as I mentioned in my um, piece that's called um, Submission and Acceptance, as a general rule of thumb, like in anthropology, I advise that within the first three or four years after tenure, um, ideally you want to hit all three sides of what I call the journal triangle, right? General, topic, and area. So if, for to take myself as an example with my original dissertation research being on gay and lesbian Indonesians, within the first couple of years, I tried to publish in GLQ, a gay lesbian studies journal, in Journal of Asian Studies, an area studies journal, and in American Anthropologist, right, like a general studies journal. And the reason you want to do that is it shows that your work is relevant to multiple audiences. And the order, in my opinion, is not so important. What you don't want is a CV five years post-PhD where you've only published in area studies journals or only published in topical journals or only in generalist journals because it can make your work seem narrow. So that's one sort of rule of thumb at the beginning for that. Um, often things that you write will be perfectly valid for more than one kind of venue. And so if you have, you know, cultural anthropology says this would be a better fit for an area studies journal, you may not really need to change it at all. You know, you can just send it in to the other journal and it may actually be a better fit for that. It is often a good idea if you do want to submit to a journal to look at the last three or four years of the journal and just skim briefly through the table of contents and the abstracts of some of the articles to look at the kinds of stuff that they're publishing. That's of somewhat limited value because editors change every few years and also editors are often interested in something different than what they've published before. So I wouldn't use that as a way to sort of limit what you might want to do, but it can nevertheless be nice to get a feel for the kinds of ways that people have been writing in that, that journal. But like I said, I wouldn't take that in a strict sense. The only piece of that I would take in a strict sense is to obey the word limits or page limits for the length 
of submissions. In terms of the material, you know, often you have journals out there, and I, I was like this for American Anthropologist, where I published a couple things that were very different than anything I'd ever done before because they were good. And if someone had looked at the last few years of my of, of AA of the journal, they might not have submitted. And so, you know, with a grain of salt, it is good to look at the few previous years of that journal, but not in a sort of limiting um, limiting way. Um, but beyond that, you know it. You, you may not need to do massive amounts of changing. I mean, certainly if you work in China and you're going to be submitting to a Journal of China Studies, you might want to make sure that your citations to the China literature are solid, but they probably were already. So, you know, you can check, but it, not that much revision may be needed, especially if you're submitting to another top journal where it's almost certain that it's going to have to go through a revise and resubmit anyway. In many cases, it's best to just submit it as quickly as you can and let them tell you if it needs work to become a better fit or not. I also wanted to ask you a common question I hear graduate students ask, which is, when in my career should I first send out articles for review, and how do I know when an article is ready for review? So anthropology is in a very difficult position regarding the first of these questions about when to send out or about when to first send out articles for review. Um, not a huge deal, but it is worth thinking about. Historically, in anthropology, you really aren't taking seriously your work until you've done your dissertation research. And then you're writing your dissertation and you typically will then take a chapter from the dissertation and turn it into your debut article. Um, that's what I did. That's what people typically do. And that's different from a discipline like sociology or communications where you're working with the general social survey or other people's data. And sometimes in those disciplines to do what we do as our orals to advance the candidacy, you'll be required to do one or two publishable articles, right, or in economics, and you'll publish those um, as you're working on your dissertation. Now, typically in anthropology, if people are publishing before their dissertations, either they did a master's degree or some other prior work that was ethnographic and they actually have enough material to do an article, or they're doing some kind of review essay or a theoretical article um, that isn't based on, on field work. And that's perfectly wonderful. I mean, that's great. Publications are never bad. Um, the only danger is that I worry in some cases about people trying to get work out to the degree that it's slowing them down from finishing their dissertations because you, you want to get your dissertation finished because to have that under your belt as you're getting stuff published. The reason why I said this is a dangerous issue or there's, it's complicated is I see, for instance, now that I do all this work in digital anthropology, anthropologists who study online culture going up in the job market against people from a communications or informatics department where they may have published two articles from their orals and the anthropologist's CV looks like there's less on it because they've waited until they've done their dissertation because they're doing more intensive field work. And actually, when I do letters of recommendation nowadays, I emphasize how the norm in anthropology is that you typically aren't publishing stuff before you've done dissertation field work because that's what you're basing your work on. And so, you know, when you're going up against other disciplines, there is an issue around this. Um, and so, you know, I, I do believe the general rule of thumb still holds true that you want to get your dissertation field work done, do it well. And then as you're writing up your dissertation, you know, when you're 
three-fourths of the way done, if you have time, take a month off and turn a chapter into a first article, get it out for review, and then go back and finish up your dissertation, that kind of thing, to finish your dissertation in a timely manner, and then get a couple things out, out for review. If you have something that's a conceptual article or based on some preliminary fieldwork that you could turn into a publishable article, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and many of my students and, and many other students do publish an article or two before they finish their dissertations. So don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's harder to make such an article be ethnographically convincing if you haven't done field work yet. And you just want to be sure that it doesn't derail your progress through a PhD program that you're setting aside a whole year to obsess over something that, you know, a small article that is not going to make or break anything anyway, but is you've lost a lot in terms of delay in getting your dissertation done. So that's, you know, the kind of issue there. In terms of knowing when your article is ready for review, you know, that's where your friends, your peers, your professors, your advisors are really valuable that you want to show things to other people before you ever send it out for, for official review if possible. Fresh eyes. It can be someone who's not an anthropologist, who doesn't come from your background, can actually be better fresh eyes in some cases to sort of take a look at something to see if it's if it they feel that's ready for review. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's sort of like the great American novel thing where there are people who spend so long polishing, trying to get a manuscript perfect that they never send it out for review. And that's also misunderstanding the review process because there's a point, and I don't have a magic answer for when you reach this point, but there's a point where the manuscript is in good enough shape where what you really want is the reviewers from the review process to give you ideas about how to improve it further. And that's the point when it's really time to send it out. I, I don't have a perfect answer as to when exactly that would be, but the, the, you get what I mean in terms of the, the, the general principle. So it is worth thinking about these things because, you know, publishing is important. It's not just a gimmick. Um, it's how we learn and talk and communicate, and it's the core of being a scholar, and it's a wonderful thing, and it's not something to be afraid of. It's a process that's very valuable, um, but it's, you know, stay in touch with other people and get advice about all these things and, and demystify the process, absolutely, and, and that really is why I've written so much about this process is to try and help with that. Well, thank you so much. This was really great and fun talking with you. You're most welcome. We will post the links to the essays that Tom has written on publishing on the show notes for this episode. Next, I spoke with Tim Elfenbein. Tim has worked in the production side of publishing at both Duke University Press and now at Cultural Anthropology. In our conversation, Tim shared what goes on from the time a manuscript is accepted for publication until it appears in print. Let's listen. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Anthropod. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by talking about your experience in publishing by way of introduction. So I know previously you were the assistant managing editor in the books division of Duke University Press, and you are now the managing editor for cultural anthropology. So could you share what your main responsibilities were at Duke and what they are now at cultural anthropology? Okay. So at Duke, I was one of, I think it was five assistant managing editors at that point. Uh, and then above us, we had the managing editor uh, in the books division. And what the 
the way that that uh, Duke was organized and that most university presses are organized uh, is that in the book division, we had three different uh, parts of the book division. Acquisitions, which are the, the acquiring editors, which is what everybody wants, uh, you know, the people they want to know because they're the ones who are going to choose your book. And editorial assistants and permissions people and, and uh, others. Uh, the second group is the is production, and and that's the that's uh, the division that I was in. So we were we take uh, final manuscripts and get them all the way into print. Um, so all the processes that go into that, and then the third division is marketing. And so those are the folks who are getting your books to Amazon, getting information about your books to different audiences, uh, just trying to let as many people uh, as possible know uh, that that your book is there. So. My responsibilities there, I would, uh, uh, well, the, the managing editors would get a pile of basically abstracts of the books that, that, were, gonna, that were coming through, and we would, we would separate them uh, among ourselves. We each had about uh, 20 to 25 books a year that we were editing. We would take that book, we would usually look at the reviews, we would uh, try to learn a little bit about the author and a little bit about the state of the manuscript before we contacted the author and then we would get it into copy editing, get it through copy editing and send it back to the author. And then once we get it back from the authors, we, we clean up manuscripts. So all of the last changes that have to be done, uh, we make sure they're all done properly. We make sure all the, you know, everything's formatted correctly. That if you say there are 12 illustrations, there are in fact 12 illustrations in the book. So all of the, all the little details are, are the kind of things that we have to, to check. And then once, once we um, finally have a, a true final manuscript, then we, we send that to our designers. And we had in-house designers at Duke. And they're the ones who are setting the design of the, of the interior as well as the covers. So they would create a design, send it off to be typeset, and then we would uh, we once we get proofs back, we also send those back to the authors and to professional proofreaders uh, to catch all those last typos and mistakes, which is really important because there's always uh, there's always mistakes. It seems to me that authors at a certain point can't reread their their book for the hundredth you know the hundred and fiftieth time and find new things in it. And if they've been if they've been reading past a mistake um, all this time, they're probably not going to catch it on the last one. So this is why uh, it's actually it was really important that we try to read as much of uh, through these books as possible and catch what we could. Uh, but also, you bring in people who have never seen it before, like a proofreader, who are very very attentive and finding the little things that that you wouldn't find. So once we uh, get all the corrections in, and, and at that point, I'm working with the uh, the typesetter to 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 get all these corrections entered in properly, and then I have to check to make sure they've been entered in properly. Then after all that, we're, we are ready, and, and the, the, the cover is designed, and the, you know, the, um, the cover copy has been written and proofed by a bunch of people, then we're ready to send it off to, to the printer. So this whole process from the time I get a manuscript to the time a book shows up in print is usually about 10 months. Wow. And, and people, yeah, people are usually, uh, that seems like a long time. Uh, and part of the problem is that each time somebody is working on the book, they're creating a new version. And so you actually can't have two different parties working on the book at the same time because then the versions start to separate. So it, everything is, is linear. So sequentially, you know, it, goes to the, it takes a month at the copy editor. It takes a month for the author to review that. 
um, you know, and on and on. And because each of the managing editors has 25 projects they're working on, they, you know, even when, when you send your copy edited manuscript to me, it may be, take me a week before I can get everything else off my desk and turn to it. So we, tr we try to compress this as much as possible, but it's hard to do. So it takes a little bit of time. Yeah. And most authors are not ready. They're like, okay, I've, I've finished with the manuscript. Uh, it's a month or two and everything should be ready. And it's, no, it takes a lot longer. Right, because at, at this point, the authors have already, well, they've written their manuscript, but they've also gone through the peer review process and do, yep. done several rounds of edits, which may have taken, in some cases, years already. And they're ready for this book to get out into print. Yep. Yeah, and that's actually one, that's actually one of the benefits. Uh, one of my main jobs as, a, as an editor is to help people stop writing. For some authors, they are so ready to, to move on that they, you know, they, they don't actually put enough energy into those final uh, polishing stages. But for others, they're just they know that there's always things that can be improved, and it's it's really hard to to, to separate the author from from the manuscript. We've talked before, and you've said that authors don't always get everything they want by the end of the production process. What sort of negotiations need to occur between authors and the press before a book is in its final form? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. So, so part of the problem uh, in publishing that, that we talk about this all the time uh, is that in most ways, the press is acting as a service, um, which means that uh, we're not asking for an author to know everything about publishing. We're taking on that burden so that they don't have to do it. But that also means that most authors have very little, uh, see very little of the process that actually goes into the making of a book and also, uh, you know, the effort that, that's required. What's harder, uh, maybe for new authors, is often that first book is the book that, that's taken 10, 15 years to get out. And so by, by the end of that time, you have such a picture of exactly the book you want. And that may not always be possible. Because again, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's labor and expenses involved. Um, and because we're talking about, um, so these are university press monographs, your book that you've written that, that's taken 15 years for you to write may have an audience of a thousand people and maybe a quarter of them will actually buy it. So we're, we're talking about a very small market, even that this could be a, a, an award-winning, fantastic book that doesn't mean that it's going to be able to pay for itself. Publishing is, is all about figuring out what are the best compromises so that we can still publish books and we can do it in the best way possible. That leads me into my next question because I know you have interests in the economic shifts in scholarly communication over the last few decades. Could you talk more about what some of those shifts have been and how they affect what publishers are able to publish? Yeah, okay, so there's so many, I mean, this is, this is why it's interesting to be in publishing right now because so many things are happening. And part of this has to do just with the shift to digital. We can say everything went digital in 95 or 99 or something like that, but, it, but the implications, uh, it's going to take a generation for them to move through the entire process. So we're continuing to struggle with what it means to, to, that, that uh, publishing is digital. Um, the, the, the economic crisis is, has sort of uh, ratcheted up a lot of the stakes for everything because money is disappearing. For me, especially coming to, uh, to cultural anthropology, uh, it's an interesting project because um, uh, part of the, the, the or, or one of the sort of pushes behind open access 
is that when we when we make things uh, digital first, and that's the, that's the primary means of distribution, that changes the calculation in how expensive it is to distribute something. So uh, usually, uh, you know, digital distribution means that we no longer have to worry about sending things to a printer, and we no longer have to worry about things like shipping. So right now, the primary means for distribution for for cultural anthropology uh, is through our website. So it's digital. Because we are now mainly digital, um, this does have some uh, some places where this changes things radically, but other places where it doesn't change anything. When we're going through production, uh, what I would call the first copy costs, meaning that the costs uh, of all the labor that goes into producing the first copy of the journal, those are, are pretty much the same as they were. So that means copy editing, typesetting, although there's there, there are some changes where it, it, there are ways you can do... Um, typesetting and, and display a little bit cheaper. It just depends on, on the journal. And then all the time for the managing editor to get, you know, to coordinate with all the authors to, um, you know, to get that, the manuscript ready. So all, all those costs, uh, in a sense, stay the same. Well, the costs that change are the ones that come after that. So we're not sending it off to the printer and we're not shipping out um, uh, physical copies to people. There are other costs. Um, in terms of our, our digital distribution system, meaning we have to keep up a, 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 our own website, which has to be hosted somewhere, you know, costs a little bit of money to, to have a server somewhere. We need IT infrastructure, including labor, to help us keep everything going. So there's other uh, new costs that we wouldn't have had if we were only a print journal. When we discussed the podcast earlier, you mentioned that there were some everyday practices that could make one a better scholar and more prepared for publication. Could you share some of these uh, practices with us? Yeah, so um, there's a number of things that I, that I run across uh, when, when I'm dealing with manuscripts um, that, that uh, to me, there's, there's uh, authors take on uh, uh, some different responsibilities uh, when they're preparing their manuscripts. And I, and I don't know whether the, the, the kind of lessons... Um, about getting ready for your manuscript to, to go into preparation uh, and into publication uh, are, are ever really taught. Um, so a couple of things that I would suggest. One is that very few people, uh, even though they are writing on Microsoft Word day and night, and it is central to their work, very few people actually learn how to use it properly. So there are things like uh, how to use styles, and all the formatting tricks. There are things like that. It has a very useful search and find and replace uh, capabilities. There's just there's so many people. You know, I get so many manuscripts that look like they were written on a typewriter uh, because people never learn how to format. And uh, for and it's actually it's a concern for someone like me because it actually takes a whole lot of time uh, and therefore money uh, for me to uh, to remove all those spaces and all those tabs to get it uh, formatted properly. Can um, you talk really specifically? So mm -hmm. what's wrong with I open up Word and have it set mm -hmm. to Times New Roman 12 point and put it on double space mm -hmm. and just, you know, go in, put in my subtitles, tab over at the beginning of my paragraph. So what what is mm -hmm. a problem with that? Well, so it's partly not understanding that your that your text is made up of a whole lot of different text elements. So I, I tend to refer to this as sort of the, the, the pragmatics of, of, uh, uh, of a document. And that uh, I know that, that this chunk of text right here is a quote, um, not because it has quotation marks on it, but because it's indented uh, from both sides. 
Um, so that's a text element, and it actually it's important that I recognize it because it it carries meaning. So there's all sorts of different kinds of text elements. Um, so headings, uh, title, um, uh, indented paragraphs versus non-indented paragraphs. Say after a block block quote. So these are the things that, that, that these are actual elements that you're using when writing. So okay, so you've you've uh, you know that these you use these all the time, but you're using tabs and spaces uh, to actually format them in your in your manuscript. Um, let's say that you've decided you're going to going to um, submit your article to a couple of different places, uh, and one of them wants you to format it one way, and another wants you to format it another way. If you haven't identified what those objects are, um, you have no way of saying, okay, I'm just going to change the style, which will reformat all of them, and I don't have to go individually into each single one. Same thing with, uh, say, practices for, um, for uh, citations and your reference list. So, uh, as we know, there are uh, most, most journals have different styles for references. Uh, and I know this frustrates uh, authors to no end, but there's there's historical reasons why we have different preferences. If you're using good citation software, and if you know how to use it properly, and if you've been inputting good data into it, you can you can fairly quickly automate some of the tasks of changing these. So I would certainly encourage people to learn about the tools you're using because there's a lot there. There's some power there that you can use, uh, which which is worth doing. A second issue that I would probably uh, suggest, especially to uh, to graduate students, especially before they go out in the field, um, is uh, how to create archives, because you will, you will be creating archives, and it may be objects, and it may be documents, but you need to be able to, when you're, when you're doing so, uh, you need a system for, for archiving and identifying them, which means uh, good labeling, which means having proper titles, which means figuring out uh, authors if there are, are them. The biggest place that this comes out is with web archiving. Um, so, you know, you're searching through the internet and you're finding all sorts of great material that you, can, that you can talk about and use in your work, which is fine. The problem is that we, we tend to have this picture of the internet as this incredible free-flowing system where, where information just links to other information. Uh, and I have to say, in reality, it's much more fragile than that. Um, so when I was at, when I was editing at Duke, uh, by the time I got a, a manuscript, it was probably two years since since it was originally put together. And when I went through the bibliography and looked at all of the URLs, all the web addresses, usually a third to a half of them were already broken uh, by the time I got my uh, by the time I got the manuscript. So things like web addresses do not last, um, and they are not, there in no way should a URL be considered a, a proper citation. All it is is a location, um, and people think that that's all you need to provide, when, when in fact you really don't. You need to provide title, you need to provide as much information about the, the object that you found, uh, because if the URL goes out, you, sh you can still provide ways for people to find that information. Beyond, beyond just making sure that you have enough information about the object, you should be saving copies, it, uh, copies of it yourself. For things on the internet, you can also do things like create your own, um, you, you can do your own archiving of things you find. So um, everybody loves the Wayback Machine uh, for the internet archive. Um, the Wayback Machine 
go crawls the internet and saves things as it goes. But um, what we've learned is that it, it often, you know, it, it, it can only do this in a piecemeal fashion. The internet is too large. There's too many documents. It can't do it all. So there's a great um, service called, called website. So W-E-B-C-I-T-E, um, which is a way where you can say, so you're the person citing this article or this resource. You can go and, and tell the, the um, internet archive, I want you to save this. And they will save a copy of it. So you know that no matter whether that document either changes locations or disappears altogether, um, you will still have a copy of it that you can that you have access to. So there's there's issues like that that I think especially doctoral students need to start uh, uh, start working on. The third one, which will be my last one, has to do with other resources, which is mainly images. I get way, way, way too many people who are just clipping pictures from the internet and saying, here are my images. And there's a couple of, of problems with this. One, when you get, especially if you're, if you're doing a book, you need to provide high quality images or they look terrible. And, and most presses won't accept them. Mm-hmm. And this usually means that if you want an image, you need, to, you need to contact the author or photographer or whoever it is. The second reason you might want to do that is that there are permissions issues. And again, especially when you get to a commercial press uh, or a university press, uh, we need to make sure that we have permission to use those images. Some people will be unreasonable and won't let, won't let you uh, use the image. Some, uh, some will. Some will charge you some money. But, it's, but these are the kinds of things you have to start thinking about. I guess one other question I have for you is, you had a lot of experience dealing with authors through the production process. Do you have any advice for authors going through that process and how to deal with their production manager? What do you wish more authors knew about the production process to help communicate with you better? Right. Well, so so I think the the main thing um, it is useful if you have questions about what what is you know what your your book is going through. Um, it's uh, we're more than happy to to explain or to try to explain as much as possible, um, uh, which I think is useful. Because again, like we, we uh, you know, at the press, we would, we would often debate about how much do we tell our authors because it's confusing um, and it's not necessarily things you need to know, but it, but it might be useful if you, do, you, know, if you, if you knew about it. Um, so, but if you, if you have questions, ask and, we'll, and, and we're happy to explain uh, as much as we can. The other thing that I think is probably uh, a little bit harder is that when, when a publisher agrees to take on a book, the book becomes partly the publisher's. And what I mean by that is that the, that the publisher um, has its name on it as well as the author. And so there are certain requirements that, that a publisher is going to have. And I think that, that authors as, uh, you know, need to be aware of it, if nothing else. Um, and again, there's, there's some negotiation that goes back and forth. But this means that you know if I'm using a style, you know a style that the author doesn't like, we have to have a good reason that you know we, we can negotiate. But there's got to be good reasons why things happen. But so part of the problem in any situation where uh, this is an object that is uh, of uh, of intimate con- concern, and the things that are happening to it uh, seem capricious because you don't understand why why they're happening. The people who go into publishing. Uh, don't go into it to butcher people's work. They go into it because they love people's work and they want to and they want to help get it out. But as publishers, we have some different concerns, uh, usually for good reason. Not always, but usually for good reason. 
but this is, I mean, this was one of the best parts about my job and what I really enjoyed uh, both now, but it's especially when I was doing books because, you know, because it takes so long to get a book through production, it meant that I had a, a year-long relationship with an author. Mm-hmm. And that's really enjoyable because we're, you know, we're working on something that matters to them and we want to, we want to figure out how it matters to them and what we can do to, to get it through the process uh, as cleanly and quickly as possible uh, and whether we can do anything to help improve it. So um, that's, the, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I got into publishing uh, after dropping out of my anthropology program. And, and partly I, I got into publishing for the same reason that I got into grad school is because I was reading the stuff anyway. Um, and I figured I'd go to grad school because then I could read it with other people. And then I figured out there was more to grad school than that. <laughs> but I also got into publishing because I still love the scholarship. And, and so this is another way of being involved with it. It's a very interesting time to be in publishing because there's all sorts of different things happening. And, you know, part of the reason that, that um, it, it's fun to be in right now is because so much is changing. And so I would say if there, there are, uh, we all know the situation of, you know, the job situation uh, for PhDs and the academy. And I would say that this is another place to look. Uh, and, and it might be of interest to people. And even beyond the acquiring editor, because that's the only person that most, you know, that's the one position that people see in publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there aren't that many, unfortunately, there aren't many published, you know, uh, acquiring editor positions out there. But there's a lot of places that are interesting uh, in publishing. And we, and we, you know, it's where all the academic refugees end up anyway. Um, so I am one among many others. I just hope people would would, uh, would look into it because it's an interesting place to be these days. Thank you for talking with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, I appreciate it. Um, and I've always loved talking publishing. Well, Jessica, the publishing process seems a bit less intimidating after hearing these interviews. I agree. I want to thank Anne Allison, Tom Bellstorff, and Tim Elfenbein once again for speaking with me. So what can we look forward to in the next installment of this episode? In the second and final part of the series, I will be talking to the incoming editors of Cultural Anthropology, Dominic Boyer, James Fabian, and Simony House. I will then speak with the very first editor of Cultural Anthropology, George Marcus. We will end with a conversation with Mary Murrow, who worked for many years as an editor and then conducted ethnographic research on the future of the book. Stay tuned. I can't wait to hear it. Just a couple more things before we close out this episode. As we mentioned last episode, we'd love to hear from y'all, the listeners. We want to know who you are, what you liked, and the things you'd like us to tackle in future podcasts. If you have the time, please fill out our brief survey. You can find a link to the survey on the show notes. And besides just hearing from you all, we are recruiting. If you've got an idea for a podcast, get in touch with us. Anthropod is always looking for more people to explore anthropological issues, either based on an essay in the journal, cultural anthropology, or from the wider world. We'll work with you from idea to finished episode to get your voice out there. No prior experience in podcasting is necessary. All that's required is an idea and a willingness to learn. Email us at anthropod at callamp.org. We're looking forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, you can find all the previous podcast episodes at our website, Go to callant.org and search for Anthropod. And we encourage you to subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. As always, send us your comments about this and any of our other episodes by searching for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook, tweeting us at Callant on Twitter, 
or sending an email to anthropod at callanth.org. I would like to thank you, Rupa, for extensive help in editing. I would also like to thank Bascom Guffin and Grant Atsuki for technical assistance. I'm Rupa Pillai. And I'm Jessica Lockrum. See you next time.